welcome to the BioCruzma podcast. I'm your host, Christopher Gardner. Today we have Chaz of the Dead coming straight out of Florida. Straight from the bottom, all of us Florida boys say. At least back in the day we used to say that. Chaz is a very interesting dude. I've heard him on two of my favorite podcasts, My Family Thinks I'm Crazy podcast from Mark Steves and the One on One podcast with Juan. <laughs> and in those interviews that I heard from him, I was very impressed with his bridging the gap from the supernatural to the over-unity realm. Uh, you've heard some of my podcasts with Dr. Moshe Daniel. If you haven't, the coffee talk that I've done with uh, Dr. Moshe, which he and I are going to be doing an interview very soon again to introduce our organ accumulators. But uh, Moshi and I talked about the the consciousness in the machine. It's something that uh, John Moriel Akili talked about, and Chaz of the Dead that he's he's on it. He understands. There's uh, this wonderful stories that he brings up, or I should say, they're more observations when he's describing how modern electronics, modern surveillance technology actually stops the flow of some of these things that occur. So who's to say what these electrical waves that are we all use in the modern world, what they're doing to the unseen realm? So I'm really looking forward to this podcast. I, I really hope you guys enjoy it, and I will see you on the flip side. Check out Chaz of the Dead. He has wonderful content. I've I've really been enjoying it since I've been jumping in. So here is Chaz. Mr. Chaz, how goes it? Great. How are you? Thanks for having me on. We're here today with Chaz of the Dead. I've heard your I've heard you on two podcasts, Mark Steve's podcast and the one on one podcast. And both times I was super impressed because you brought up three of my main stalwarts that I always am telling people about Wilhelm Reich, Victor Schauberger, and Victor. Grabevnikov. You're one of the few cats out there that talk about Victor Grabevnikov. Am I? Have I been pronouncing? I've been saying Grabinikov. Have I been pronouncing that wrong? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And with uh, with Adam yes. or with Mark Steves, you were you're calling Victor Schauber. You were calling Schauberger something else. You were calling Schauberg. Him- oh, I bur- butcher all of those names. Excuse my, uh, you know, American tongue. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or, um, so. But, uh, <laughs> Oh, sorry, well, what really intrigued me about what you were talking about is your field experience with electronics and and you know casing some of these paranormal act you know paranormal locations, and I I really would like to 
for you to flesh out your theory on what the electronics are doing. Actually, just go ahead and introduce yourself to the crowd and kind of let them know what you've been doing as a paranormal investigator, and then we'll get into some of your theories on what's happening with the electronics and how that kind of squashes some of the transmission that might be happening. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, as you've said, I'm a, a paranormal investigator. Um, I cover all things from, you know, ghosts to UFOs to cryptids. Um, but, you know, my work has kind of zoomed in on the UFO subject, um, in particular when it comes to the couple of books I've written. Um, one was about a case I covered in Chile, um, and the other a case here in northern Florida. That's kind of, I'm going to say, half ghost, half UFO, as a mm -hmm. lot of these stories tend to be. Um, when you do this long enough, you start to see this, this overlap. Um, of course, not everyone. You got your ghost hunter, ghost hunters, and your UFO guys, and they don't like to talk to each other too much. And then the Bigfoot guys, whole other camp, my favorite camp, perhaps, um, but totally out there weird as well. Mm -hmm. And there's kind of been this growing subculture in the last decade or two where um, the subjects are starting to overlap and these groups are starting to um, share with each other more data and more information, which has shown that whatever's happening here, there are connections between this phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And throughout my research into these varieties of phenomenon, something has continued to pop up, which is this little anecdote I keep hearing from these odd places. Um, and it started in Morocco back in 2015, 2016, I believe. Um, so that was, uh, I was backpacking. I was writing for my own little independent WordPress blog at that time and, you know, covering ancient history, mysteries and paranormal stuff. Um, and this, uh, a friend I had made was like, oh, I got a guy you got to interview. And this dude had these supposed intelligence connections. And he was a really eccentric, bizarre dude. But the short end of the story is he very nonchalantly told me that, oh, yeah, no, I know people who fly UFOs. They reverse engineered an anti-gravity chamber inside the honeybee. And that's the technology they use to fly UFOs. Mm -hmm. Super casually, right off the cuff. So much so, I was like, well, this guy's fucking crazy. And I kind of wrote it off regrettingly at the time um, because now I wish I had taken notes of everything he said exactly. Um, but this little thread over almost a decade of, of work in UFOs in particular now um, has kept popping up every once in a while, this mm -hmm. little um, notion. And that's kind of what brought me into the world. Uh, well, first, I did a lot of weird insect research. But from there, it brought me to the world of Viktor Gerbinikov. And I had already been familiar with Wilhelm Reich. Um, but from there, uh, Strasburg. Did I say it Schauberger. right? Schauberger. Schauberger. Shit. I keep <laughs> adding that T. I don't know why. <laughs> um Frauberger and um, actually a variety of other um, going back into um, the 1800s and potentially even further of people who have claimed to have discovered this similar technology. Not necessarily anti-gravity chambers inside of bees, but the 
uh, what I've been come to call this superfluid hypothesis, uh, a, a system of physics that operates on this other force that's not magnetism, it's not electricity, it's not um, gravity. It's in that kind of realm. And scientists smarter than me call this the superfluid hypothesis. Um, which basically, it's, you know, it's the fucking force from Star Wars. Oh, I'm yeah. sorry. Can I swear on this oh, show? Oh, definitely. Okay, yes. cool. <laughs> it's essentially the force. Um, ether, orgon, as Wilhelm Wright called it, mm -hmm. whatever your preferred terminology. Um, but this this thread has, you know, it's intuitive. We It's existed in, you know, Eastern medicine for thousands of years at this point. Um, and it's been a part of human history for a long time. Uh, the B theory is the idea that the UFOs are based on this, mm -hmm. uh, this physics. And that's where things get a little wonky, um, as they tend to when it comes to anything paranormal. So, uh, yeah, that's kind of a, a quick background on, uh, how I ended up here. That's wonderful. <laughs> yeah. Cause I, my my journey into like the supernatural or paranormal was kind of backwards like going from i went from from more of the yogi perspective of, mm. of mm -hmm. being trained as a raja yogi and being around people that had siddhas have you ever heard of a siddhi or a siddha um it sounds familiar but i'm i'm not quite sure if i know um they there's 12 I guess you'd say endemic uh, different powers that a person can develop mm. through discipline and focus. Like focus in Raja Yoga is power. Gotcha. And so I had been around two people that were uh, obsessive, obsessively uh, into their practice and they were already master athletes. Oh, wow. And, and so they already could control their body you know, very easily, you know, just in normal life. So when they gave their energy to their yoga practice, um, the, the ability to focus just grew and grew and grew. So their power grew. And it was very interesting because when they were in a non-egoic state, they would present siddhas, mm -hmm. one of which was changing the weather. Another one was like actually levitating. But whenever they tried to do it, they couldn't. Because whenever you're trying to do something, right. you know, there is this, you know, egoic energy that's actually taking away the power. <laughs> yeah, it, there's it, that that same uh, kind of tradition in transcendental meditation, where if you think you've the minute you think you've hit it, well, you haven't because you had that thought. And so right. you've got to restart. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's that that uh, uh, what flow state um yeah exactly who, yeah yeah uh, who wrote that great book on that whole whole concept because yeah Steve, athletes... Stephen Kotler he wrote Thank you. yeah yeah Stephen <laughs> Kotler that's a great book you know engineering mm -hmm. superman yeah that was it yeah, yeah that's an excellent book um and there's a lot of excellent research into this flow state and any athlete who competes not even on a professional level even like kids who play esports and video games like yeah Sometimes you just have that game where you hit every crack shot. Like even something like that can activate these states, but it does. It sits somewhere between 
the conscious and the subconscious realm. Um, and that is actually where we see a variety of other paranormal ph phenomenon manifest as well. Right. And this goes back to more of my A theory, um, where most of this uh, paranormal phenomenon, at the very least, it has the same consciousness-based mechanism that allows them to manifest, whether it's you know an entity, a ghost-like entity, a UFO-like entity, uh, aliens, Bigfoot, whatever, there is a similar mechanism at play in the human consciousness that allows, facilitates these interactions. Mm. That being said, there's a good amount of evidence that this B theory, if this superfluid hypothesis is true, can also fuck up that whole, like if your consciousness is based on particles and this superfluid would obviously be based on, on the particle level as well, then operating a machinery machinery based on this superfluid and according to reports of, of Berbinikov and others causes bizarre paranormal side effects and Wilhelm Reich was experiencing these more and more the more he used these devices and the the older he got um, and again he was convinced that they were aliens from a different planet or re reality dimension um, but his interactions with the Air Force at the time suggest a, a suspicious alternative uh, explanation for that as well. What, um, what do you think that is? Because I actually, I was, I had no idea who Victor Schauberger was. I was massaging one of my clients in South Florida, and she had grown up on the Reich on the Wilhelm Reich place in, I think it's Maine or New Hampshire. Oh, Organon, yeah, the, yeah. the facility, the lab. And this is early 2000s, and I was telling her, like, you know, oh, I'm in the ashram and meditation and Siddhis and all this stuff. And she's like, oh, you need to read Wilhelm Reich. Hmm. And so I started, actually, Wilhelm Reich was the reason why I, like, I left the ashram, because I read his book, uh, Murder of Christ. And it talks about the placebo effect of us actually generating our own Messiah and, oh, yeah. what, and what that actually does to the people around us. And it was oh. and how it was antithetical to this orgone energy. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you say that because I, I, um, I'm not, I actually haven't read that work in particular, but I'm familiar with that same concept through lived experience in some of my travels. Um, and it's something I call Yogi Rage because of this one particular yogi who was like the chillest, most calm guy until he wasn't. He had that like kind of cult leader mm -hmm. <laughs> roots where, you know, he, he had obviously achieved some disconnect that, you know, with wisdom came some negative side effects, let's say, <laughs> where... Mm -hmm. he, it was uh, no a potentially dangerous individual after a while. Yeah, um, and again, you know, we anyone who watches true crime or pays attention to the news knows how those things can end when one of these um, people latches onto a system and then manipulates it to their own means. And again, it it can be done with any of religious or psychological or spiritual practice. Um, mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, they're so potentially dangerous, but also so potentially useful if if they can be understood by the individual. I agree. That's why I went from the ashram. 
I left the ashram and then I ended up going into sales and installation of Oregon accumulators into cars. Oh, cool. like I, yeah, yeah. A friend of mine had gifted me a Joe cell. Have you ever seen a Joe cell? I don't think so. Are they similar to those hydrogen cell things? Kind of, but they don't produce hydrogen. They produce orgone. And mm. so Joe Cell is a cylinder within a cylinder within a cylinder within a cylinder. This guy, and as the story goes, this guy in Australia figured out if you put water inside of all these stainless steel cylinders and made the inner part an anode and the outer part a cathode, and you sent the energy at the right frequency, miraculously, your car would just run and run and run. And so that was taken by the the world of or like people that were into orgone into like oh that's that's brown's gas or that's orgone, and then mm -hmm. it, or it, at first people were saying it was hydrogen, and then Joe one day the guy who obviously created the Joe cell he he was mm -hmm. he was cleaning his cell and he forgot to reconnect the pipe to the engine, hmm. but it still worked. Interesting. And then so everybody was like, well, I shouldn't say everybody. He was perplexed. Like, how can this thing, this essentially this this vessel of water that's resonating and it's creating this milky white foam, how can this thing that's creating this resonant pattern make my engine essentially run fuel free? Right. And this is where the whole world like of like the people that are into orgone were like, it's orgone, it's a field effect. Right. And so my friend Moshe Daniel, Dr. Moshe Daniel, he invented what he called the mojo. You know, he his name being Moshe. <laughs> he just, you know, switched the J and it's like right, a, a mojo cell. Yeah, yeah. And he made his cells spherical. So the idea is, is that it's a perfectly balanced magnetic field and you resonate that and with water inside. And we had pretty supernatural effects and we had a provable experience. We had a provable, like a crazy experience. We got two of these cells to resonate in conjunction with each other in South Florida. And like within, I'd say seven hours, we had a, a black whoop whoop helicopter over us. Oh yeah, and yeah. I've had we... the same experience in North Florida, in uh, north of Jacksonville, investigating the Bet Sphere. What's that? Helicopter flyovers. What's a Bet Sphere? <clears throat> so the Bet Sphere is—it's a fascinating story if you haven't heard, especially if you're Florida-based. Um, there was this very interestingly this this house north of Jacksonville. It's on um, Fort George Island. <laughs> It sits between the Rebalt Club and the, um, uh, what's the, Kingsley Plantation, which both very interesting historical things. Check out the ghost stories and stuff involved in my book. Plug, self-plug there. Um, yes. This, uh, oh, a place between time and space, a true story of Florida's strangest home, something like that. UFOs, ghosts, and Florida's strangest home. Um, and so in between these two historical landmarks sits Florida's strangest home. It's this, uh, the Betts Castle or the Neff House, depending on who you're asking. It's very interesting, kind of tying back to what ah, I was Neffle. discussing at the start. 
Uh, well, that, but the Neff house is what the ghost hunters call it. And the Betts house or castle is what the UFO people call it. Because it sits at it's this epicenter of these two distinctly different but similar because they're at the same location, um, paranormal phenomenon. And so it was constructed for the Neff family. The uh, Nettleton Neff um, was a real estate tycoon. Uh, I'm sorry, railroad tycoon. He operated out of St. Louis, had a bunch of properties all over, and he wanted to build this grand vacation house. Um, he hired a famous architect to do it, um, uh, Greeley, Melvin Greeley, who's built a lot of the Jacksonville landmarks um, that are still historical landmarks today. Um, and Greeley called it his most unique home. And it's kind of got like a Winchester feel about it because it's it's got 22 different levels. It's not entire floors. They're like step up, step down. There's these weird half floors wall doors in the middle of walls six feet up um like just a bunch of bizarre features in this house mm -hmm. um, and the fact that it's been abandoned now for for close to 100 years has uh made it even more strange to to be inside um but uh nettleton neff never moved in his whole family died in tragedies there was suicides um a mysterious fire and his entire family died in a few short years um, and that's when this house, which sits on the highest point in Duval County, um, a, a place believed to be partially shell-midden from Native Americans, mm -hmm. um, it became the haunted, the haunted house of Jacksonville. Because it's in the woods, it's up on a hill. Wait, a house like a on castle. an Indian burial ground? Yeah, it, <laughs> it fits all the stereotypes. And it really does look like the setting of a, a horror movie, especially if you go out there today, because it's just totally abandoned in the middle of these woods no one's out there it's pretty strange um and uh it became this you know center of ghost stories until this woman jerry betts she bought it in the 70s um, and she was a real estate and trucking tycoon and a woman so mm -hmm. she like ran for state congress and there's like an article at the time that's um, how will these women keep house if they're elected? Like, <laughs> it's really, she had an uphill battle to say the least. Um, but uh, uh, during her time living at this house, her and her adult son were walking around the island one day when they found this. And the story is told many different ways. There's a lot of different versions of it. But the gist is they found this big metal sphere and this burnt out patch of woods. And they were like, well, this is weird. They thought maybe it was a cannonball or something, despite it being pretty shiny still. And they picked it up, took it home, and it sat at their house for a few days until um, their adult son who found it, Terry, was playing his guitar and the ball started to vibrate and like mm -hmm. kind of hum back and respond. And shortly afterwards, it began to roll around the house of its own volition it would like kind of like follow them around as if it was a pet. Uh, interestingly enough, though, the dog hated it. They had a little like, you know, um, little tiny dog. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was going to say shit dog, but I like those dogs sometimes. Uh, but it hated being near the sphere. It would like whine and um, complain and like wiggle out of your grasp if you held the sphere near it. Um, 
the sphere uh, one instance uh, a third party one of the radio show hosts who kind of did like the local coast to coast spooky late night radio show he came in to see this sphere it was sitting on this flat glass table he was talking and he was like well let's go outside and take some pictures of the house and stuff because you know it's such a weird structure and as he's they're going to to the back door the sphere wobbles and it rolls to the edge of the table and dangles off the edge of this flat table and kind of like wiggles back and forth and the the witness said it was like it was kind of like a cat or a dog being like well if you're going outside i want to go outside like don't forget about me like take me out with you and it had this weird kind of sentience to it um but uh to to wrap up the the gist um j allen hynek got involved the navy gets involved and there's a lot of weird, um, like, phantom phone calls and bizarre phenomenon. And eventually, the sphere, according to the family, one, stops behaving like it used to. It kind of just goes inert again. Um, Jerry believed that it had been tampered with um, by either the Navy or J. Allen Hynek. There's this whole other version where J. Allen Hynek is caught swapping the sphere when he goes and stays with his family with a, another sphere, a fake sphere. Um, and his son tells a story of them having a big metal sphere in their basement. But I think that might have been a different sphere, as we're coming to know that these metal spheres are one of the most common UFOs, if not the most common, flying around right now. Well, um, did you ever hear of John Wirrell Keeley? Yes, absolutely. With his, uh, what they've debunked it as compressed air, but his... No, uh, no, no. Well, it's not just his miracle glass. He had he had a sphere. Like um, right. I've I've read a bunch of of the work from Dale Pond, who has chronicled his spheres, hmm. and he would have this sphere. Like the like if you if you're a musician or you're into like if you know anything about musical theory, he like essentially made a circular like full musical scale. Right. And he would tune, he had a sphere within a sphere, and they were perfectly machined, and he could create action at a distance with it. And he was also, what's interesting about this, what makes me think about the Betts sphere, is that he was hired, I think he was out of Pennsylvania, he was from the Northeast somewhere, but he was actually, he was actually hired by, um, railroad magnets to to bore holes with his device right yeah and uh again he's uh he's got a brief section as well in these 1800s uh section in this writing project i'm currently working on um because again he has uh the same what i find most interesting about most of these guys is he has a very similar end to his story as i would say roughly 7 60 to 70% of the the scientists who have discovered this tech where they um i don't recall exactly uh, keely died suddenly i don't remember exactly what but they very quickly go in and say like look at all these pipes in his lab he was clearly using compressed air it was all fake nothing to see here government officials took all of his documents and they were never released the same thing happened to reich he was actually died quote Mm -hmm. unquote jeffrey epstein style died in prison 
um, and all of his documents, two tons worth, were supposedly burned in New York, um, which, again, they shipped them down from Maine his, in his lab in Oregon um, and supposedly destroyed them in New York. And all of his, you know, original inventions, anything that wasn't completely metal and nailed to the ground was taken out and removed as well. Um, all because supposedly he was selling medical devices without a license. Yeah. Unquote, as their justification. Um, uh, there's questions about, it's very interesting, the stuff on Gurbinikov, because most of it was coming from a guy um, who ran a website called Keelynet, named after yes. the guy. Yeah. And he kind of vanished. Um, as far as I've been able to tell, the website went down. Mm -hmm. um, and he's been inactive since, um, I want to say, 2013, 2014. It's been uh, a minute. It, yeah. It, his Twitter's gone dark and everything. And he was getting a lot of information directly from Gurbinikov's son. Um, and I had actually planned to go to Is Isford. I'm going to butcher that name. I'm not going to even try. That town in Siberia where uh, they they still have that um, portion of a university dedicated to Gurbinikov's discoveries of the CSE effect mm -hmm. and where his family supposedly still lives to this day. Um, again, I was working on this back pre-Ukraine invasion because I had like a Russian friend who was going to sponsor me and everything. Um, and needless to say, those... American guy going to Russia to ask about UFOs. Not going to risk it. <laughs> yeah, I have to say, I I was I got into Grubevnikov around 2010. Mm. But and the reason why his information resonated with me, and I'm using that word very specifically, is because where I was living in Central America, it was very well known that you couldn't build cabinets a certain way because if you if you built a cabinet with any type of cavity in it that was shaped a certain way you'd have a very specific type of bug huh. that you that you would never be able to get rid of That's and i was awesome. i was renting this this house and they built the the kitchen cabinets wrong and the farm manager was like okay around this time of year the the bees will come and I didn't know what to think of that. I was like, I'm not afraid of bees or anything like that. So mm -hmm. one day there were like, you know, five or six drones around. And then the next mm -hmm. day when we got home, there was literally the entire inside of the house was swarming with millions of bees. Like the, wow. the whole house had become a beehive. And it was all because there was a cavity that resonated a certain frequency and whatever queen was in the area, she would find it and take up shop. Wow. And so yeah. it, was, it was so consistent that the farm manager of that farm became a beekeeper. And, oh, would, wow. and would come in and smoke, smoke the bee out, mm. get the queen. And he, he's actually, I think, in southern Costa Rica, he, is, he, he runs like whatever they call the Bee Association of Southern Costa Rica. Oh, cool. But then I read Grabevnikov, and it's just like, mm -hmm. okay, there's these these uh, a cavity, which is a negative space. Like, you're an mm -hmm. artist, aren't you? Like, you do art? Uh, I dabble. I mostly write, but yeah, yeah. 
Okay, so in art, like when it, the best art isn't the the exoteric thing that's being drawn, it's what's happening with the negative space behind it. And this goes back right. to like Victor Schauberger. Victor Schauberger was always like the the strongest force in nature is cavitation. And a cavitation is the the lack of something. And when you create the lack of something, Mother Nature abhors a vacuum and she collapses the field to fill whatever has been truncated or whatever has been removed. And you can right. and you can use that energy to your advantage. And that's what his uh verbal Reiner, I can't say it in a German accent, <laughs> but his foo fighters that he was mm -hmm. making. But it was also the same thing that Viktor Grabevnikov was talking about was like these beetles and these bees, they have this cavity and their 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 wings are just a waveguide. Right. And so the cavity would resonate and then the waveguide would distribute that energetic pattern. Mm -hmm. And that's how they would levitate, quote unquote. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because... Uh, for the longest time, that was a mystery, was how do bees actually fly? Yes. And there has been um, a studies that attribute it to something so close to what Gurbinikov was describing. But they say it's additional muscles that allow them to create this. Interestingly enough, no. this vortice, which lines up to some of Schrausberg's stuff. So again, it has this association, but they're missing the mark. Um, and for those who don't know where where um, I come into all of this stuff, because uh, if you want to get, I'm sure that Christopher's got way more already from this conversation. I know you've got way more information on the, the function of a lot of these systems, these, um, let's say, superfluid systems, just to blanket them. Um, but where I come into these stories is where it gets into the paranormal stuff, because yes. again, that's where I, I, I like to go to far off places and look into these, you know, strange stories. And Gurbinikov's strange story was that he, well, first he discovered this principle on the, the wing shells of heavy flying insects. And this mm -hmm. is where it gets kind of interesting because he kind of sidestepped which insect exactly he was using because he didn't want the populations to be affected. Um, but I've got two theories about this. One, he was heavily involved when in his student days researching scarab beetles, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, if you think back to Egypt and maybe how they lifted some crazy heavy blocks might make sense. Um, but two, the crazy dude in Morocco who told me bees Interestingly enough, if you do a graph of UFO sightings and bee populations, and again, correlation, not causation, but that graph is an X. Yes. <laughs> so the bees go down as the UFOs go up. Just an interesting observation. But Gurbinikov said he literally used these heavy um, flying insects, the wing shells of them, to create his own flying craft. He would build these boxes um using the shells and then he put a bunch of them on what essentially looks like a pallet with some handlebars like a scooter's handlebars and according to him and witnesses around him this craft was capable of some incredible flights um mm -hmm. now again where it gets interesting is when he was operating this craft he reported a bunch of weird side effects a lot of paranormal side effects anywhere he would operate it 
um, land it, take off a bunch of times, that area would start getting these um, weird audio hallucinations. People who would hang out in the building would hear strange noises. Um, things would disappear and reappear, classic kind of poltergeist phenomenon. One of the most interesting things that was noted was that um, on one instance when he dropped, um, I believe it was a test tube over an apartment building, a bunch of tiny, perfectly burned, melted holes appeared throughout the windows in the apartment building. And this is something that John Keel wrote about in the Mothman prophecies of houses that the Mothman flew over in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Mm -hmm. uh, now, of course, Gravinikov, late 90s, he could have read the Mothman prophecies in remote Siberia, but ooh, man, that's a weird detail to pick out and use to back up. If he's making this up, he's really well researched. Um, well, so again, oh, it, sorry, go ahead. It, it, this all, like, this makes me think of what happened to the buildings around World Trade Center 1 and 2 and 7. You look well, at all these buildings that had these perfectly melted holes through the windows. Yeah. It's not it's not like there was explosives and shrapnel was like flying through all these other buildings. Like you have literally glass that, you know, is you have to get above 3000 degrees to melt through it. So yeah. And whatever was happening on that fateful day in September, that was an a, an over unity. I mean, it's a technology that most people don't know, so it might as well be a paranormal event, like absolutely, <laughs> or, or supernatural event, because the amount of power that was uh, shown in, in in eliminating three of the largest buildings in the world, like that. Mm -hmm. that is a supernatural event like that oh. and then all the effects that are were shown around and in the area like these little holes like you're talking mm -hmm. about Bro, from the don't get me started about the, the pentagon and lack of foot i'll get my whole tinfoil <laughs> hat out but, uh, <laughs> but yeah absolutely when you look at a lot of these um i i think the the sphere perhaps the bet sphere though there's again that's why I love doing this stuff is I never, I, even though this is my theory, there's still holes. I never believe anything 100% because if it's a perfect story, it's probably not the truth. Right. Because the truth is sloppy. It's messy. <laughs> um, but <laughs> in this, this story, I do believe that there's a lot of evidence to suggest that these metal spheres have been weaponized by probably most modern nations at this point. Because if it does work out, if Gurbinikov was able to build a, a one-off out of bug parts, mm -hmm. <laughs> and Strasbourg used the technology from, uh, what was it, log flumes was the basis yes. of his stuff. Gurbinikov's was orgasms. Again, this, this modality, this superfluid is present in nature. So any at some point, a naturalist is going to come up with something similar to what these guys have had. And that's kind of what history has shown us. Um, it's a, a technology that keeps wanting to be present, but keeps being potentially suppressed. Well, and it, it's pretty much, and this is like, it's, this is where I, I see your work being important is I douse properties, right? 
Right. And so I'm going to tie two things together for you that might help you. So one thing that we saw with doing the spheres, the mojos, was that the spheres were much, much more sensitive to the surroundings and the consciousness of people than the cylinders that were previously used. So like you said, the bet sphere just stopped working. Well, we had experiences where we we're gaining 50, 60% efficiency, and then all of a sudden it would just stop working. Mm. And what we were able to, to diagnose was, oh, the environment changed, the consciousness of the people around it had oh, yeah. shifted. And another thing was, depending on what land we were on, where we were at with the device also affected it. And so when I would do dousing, I still do dousing of properties. Like when you find, say, a dragon path or a ley line or a water line, when you find these things in the property, there is a tangible different feel in, the, in that spot. And I, I'm wondering from your perspective, like with this, the the Neff house being up on that hill in Jacksonville, has anybody doused the property that you know of? Like, do you do where these paranormal things occur? Have have there been active people dousing to find out whether or not it's over like a nodal point or anything like that? Um, not that I know of. Um, so it's you're technically not allowed out there. Um, you know, you got to bend some rules, break some rules. DeSantis hasn't come for me yet, so uh, <laughs> I'm not too worried about it. Um, but you, I've had multiple people who want to go out there with me, and they're like, well, we need to get permission to film because they want to make documentaries and stuff. And it's a solid no every time. And, and I, my personal experience with a little persistence is it wasn't really a solid no. It's more of no one's really quite sure whose jurisdiction it falls under because the land is under um, federal management, but there's state, the state park of the plantation is what operates it daily. So it's kind of this weird legal gray area. No one wants to fucking do shit for, especially for ghost hunters. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh the interesting part is if it is atop one of these shell middens, well, these shell middens are essentially, quote unquote, trash heaps, um, but they would build houses, chiefs' houses, um, religious spots and stuff on top of these uh, mounds. And if you consider Grubinikov's cavity structure effect, the entire mound, the entire hill would be filled with little cavities and so yes. it would create a general cse feel which perhaps might explain some of the you know uh bizarre reports you hear still to this day around native american burial mounds it's creating this natural field that's affecting consciousness that or again that's b theory a theory is that any it's again it's that dance between subconscious and conscious that allows us to glimpse these other realities and that can be through you know the old school shaman way taking some ayahuasca or mushrooms or whatever um, but it can also be a much simpler way through simple storytelling and so if people believe something's haunted they're more likely to have a, a paranormal experience because their mind's open to it Mm -hmm. And subconsciously, if you're on a burial ground, that might lead to enough conscious energy to, to create the proper conditions to experience paranormal phenomenon. 
Um, or again, the both of those things could also be true. There could be a marriage between these two factors um, where there is one, a general effect. And this is not by any means out of the, the we know heavy electromagnetic fields can cause hallucinations. We know certain gases, CO2 and chemicals induced in right numbers can cause weird spooky hallucinations. Um, hearing a weird story and being blasted by some CSE could probably cause one as well. And just to say, again, science writes those off as hallucinations. I, I stop there because I think they're right. Those things are factors, absolutely. But when something becomes paranormal is because that hallucination left some kind of physical imprint, whether it's Bigfoot leaving a footprint or building a stick structure in the woods, a poltergeist stacking a bunch of chairs in a crazy way or you know moving a glass by itself off of, of a shelf. Um, or, you know, a UFO that leaves burn marks and, and, uh, people who are abducted and pull out these bizarre implants that again, look like they're made of normal things, but they're clearly manufactured and they mm -hmm. were obviously healed in for many years. And so again, there's these physical impacts. And so to write them all off as hallucinations is, you know, dishonest. And so again, we have to look at these and consider all of the factors when looking into to the paranormal. But when it comes to traditional scientific uh, explanations, those are definitely left wanting. I think the of this, you know, superfluid hypothesis adds a lot of potential answers to some of these questions. Again, back to the, the burial mound idea. Could you... Uh, because I think of superfluid as just being ether. Could you expound a little bit on the superfluid theory? So yeah, the reason science prefers, and I'm saying quote unquote science, um, I got some sources. We'll be in the next book. All right, we got. <laughs> but there are a bunch of papers, specifically by Dutch and German researchers, who are still researching this thing called superfluid. And it's a real scientific thing. There's been three Nobel prizes awarded to superfluid researchers throughout the 1900s. Um, suspiciously, none in the modern era, like all of a sudden, it's just not cool to do that research anymore. Again, suspicious. Um, but there is video of superfluid occurring. And I believe it's helium-3 is the only known element that we know can enter a superfluid state. But there is, you can watch videos of it occurring. Um, it's shitty, grainy, black and white footage from the 1900s, but it's also shitty and grainy because they have to do it in these special freezing chambers. And so once you get helium-3 to right above absolute zero, it's like something like 1.06442, it's this exact number. The liquid helium-3, at this point, it, the gas has turned to a liquid, does this super bizarre thing. It phases through the glass or container or whatever it's being held in. It drops through the bottom, it fades out the side, and most interestingly, it irradiates out the top in this gravity-defying manner. Um, and that's because at this rate, the liquid molecules are vibrating at this rate that's cohesive with all other matter, gas, solid other liquid and so it just 
kind of disperses in this weird way. And then if you alter it a little bit, it will get back to water. And then once you get past absolute zero, I think, it, I don't know if it does solid. I don't, I don't know. Someone check that. Uh, <laughs> but it's this super bizarre phenomenon and they've deemed it the superfluid um, because it was, you know, 1930 something and that sounded cool back then. <laughs> And mm -hmm. so the superfluid hypothesis looks at this and it asks the question, well, if there was an element that was naturally occurring in the superfluid state, well, we would have no way of knowing it, would we? Because it would be, it would exist inside of our eyes, inside of our cells, it would exist inside of our solids, our liquids, it would exist inside of everything. And so it's kind of like trying to observe a particle that particles can't, don't really exist or don't exist at least in a solid state until they're observed. We found out, well, how do we study that as observers? It's the same issue with a superfluid. Okay, now imagine there's this invisible fluid, the force throughout everything, ether, whatever you favorite word for it is. And in this naturally occurring, we know this could happen because of helium three. Well, what kind of things can we do to, um, you know, test this? And that's what the research nowadays is kind of focusing on. And that's how I came across it as someone sent me this really interesting paper um, from some researchers in Germany who were using um, Gurbinikov's uh, CSE effect, the not the UFO shit. They clearly and intelligently left all that shit out. But the stuff that has been accepted, because there is this effect, CSE is testable. You can do homemade experiments to see it in action. Um, they posit that this suggests the presence of a superfluid because of its uses in medical equipment and stimulating through bone and inside soft tissue they suggest that well this would only operate on some kind of superfluid it's simulating mm -hmm. something that can travel through various mediums um again kind of like how we use x-rays but it doesn't give you cancer as a side effect right <laughs> ideally you know um, again who knows because the the research on most of this subject is uh uh kiboshed for the most part um, but again, if that is what's occurring here, perhaps this superfluid has a lot of the answers we're looking for, whether it's UFOs or general paranormal phenomena of consciousness of a lot of these, uh, questions that, that remain unanswered. Um, well, I think, I think it is, I, I think because the paranormal, the supernatural, and all this technology that has been purposely kept out of the public sphere, there it's all related. I mean, we can all pretty much agree that the only way Germany was such a powerhouse when it came to World War II from a technological perspective was because they were completely mixing the occult Oh super, yeah, they were going super, crazy with it. <laughs> supernatural gravy, but I, I've I've looked into texts of like the the Thule Society and like mm. what their cosmology was. Well, I was going to ask you about what your beliefs in um, Schauberger's involved 
I said that right that time? Yeah, Schauberger. You did. You you, you nailed right. it. I'm yes. learning. Look, you and I can learn. Schauberger. <laughs> uh, um, I noticed that a lot of, you know, the like the biomedical institute and stuff that um you know have continued his work don't like to talk about the nazi bit very much it's very often downplayed so i was wondering where you landed on on that subject matter do you think he because again the kind of narrative that they're pushing is that um, you know, if they discovered UFO technology, it wasn't because he was like helping them. They might have like stole his stuff, and you know, he had no idea. Where do you kind of land on that? Um, you know, discussion when it comes to Schauberger. Well, Schauberger was a complete hermeticist, right? So, like, he was like, you know, the emerald tablets of Thoth type of guy. Mm -hmm. Like, he didn't. His his family line of foresters they were not um, they were not theists per se, right? They weren't atheists, but they weren't theists as far as I've understood. Like the majority of what I've read from him or about him was through Callum Coates, and then I read reprints of his articles. I forgot what magazine that he he would write for in Austria, mm -hmm. and it's kind of it was very difficult to kind of get, I guess you would say a, um, a supernatural perspective of his because he was so mm -hmm. matter of a fact in yeah. his writings. Yeah. I know he's one of the few people that told, told Hitler that <laughs> the, you guys are claiming that you want a Reich, you know, which means thousand years, a thousand mm -hmm. year reign. He's like, with the way you're doing things, you're not going to last 10 years. Mm -hmm. And that put him in a lot of disfavor with the Nazis, apparently. I don't know how much of the whole Nazi story is accurate. Um, I know that he was an adamant lover of nature. Mm -hmm. And in that, he abhorred war. He saw that war was this like gratuitous land grab that destroyed, you know, just consistently destroyed Mother Nature, which he wasn't he wasn't into. Um, and at the same time, he was also an inventor. It's just like all of us that are entrepreneurs, like you need mm -hmm. a certain amount of recognition to build momentum to 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 be able to create whatever it is that you're going to create. And like he had gotten rec recognition for his log flume that used, you know, egg-shaped water storage to densify the water and then carry the logs through vortexes and stuff like that. But where he was getting to was this resonant technology by the mid-30s. And then that's when he really caught the eye, apparently, of, you know, in right. that in that region the so, bell uh -huh. <laughs> this project this is and man when you get into the nazi bell like i've read i've read a bunch of different uh authors talk about the oh, yeah. Nazi. very bell. debated yes yes the most prolific writer is um what's his name he's still around he 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 runs the giza death star uh website it's like a complete boomer website um <laughs> God, it's all about like, you know, the the 
the great pyramid of egypt is this like you know death star weapon and he wrote uh, yeah yeah he wrote all these books about the nazi bill and i was kind of being swayed by that propaganda until i actually read uh this compendium it was a three volume set that talked about this cosmology that was pre-Einsteinian cosmology that had pretty much gripped all of Central Europe. And mm. what that cosmology was, was is essentially everything is reverse of the what we're told. The, the Earth plane that we're on is space. Like this is open. Like for me to be able to move my arm, there has to be space. Mm -hmm. And what we know of as space is actually solid. Interesting. And so the way they described it was the solid area is, is, is pure potential. And if you think about it mathematically, pure potential would be solid. Yeah. And then this space that we're in is actually a lower valence of energy so that there could actually be movement. And what makes one relative, uh, well, I'm not, I don't want to use Einsteinian terminology, even though he shouldn't own the word, but what <laughs> actually makes you resonant with a certain area has to do with frequency, your particular frequency. And so as far as I could understand was the Nazi bell was essentially this massive harmonic resonator. Yeah. And I think the second they figured out that they could travel with that pretty much they just let the war machine play out as a cover story <laughs> like that's my that's my right, theory. the real fucked off to antarctica theory huh <laughs> but it's not like through u-boats and like all the you know admiral bird stuff and well, like i'm glad you said that because i my first book was um the paranormal expeditions hunt for the friendship was uh, my research into this group of tall blonde supposed by their own admission extraterrestrials who um, have been active throughout patagonia and south america mm -hmm. uh, spe specifically chilean patagonia um for um since the 80s uh and I, when I was down there, I went to this um, Colonia Dig, no, Villa Bavaria is what it's called now. Colonia Dignidad was what it was called when it was a Nazi compound um, that operated for several years, hiding out. Um, it was part of this circuit where they would hide out a lot of the former Nazi top brass. Um, Mangala stayed there for a while working at the hospital, and then they would rotate. Um, and it is it's this massive compound in the, the middle of nowhere. But in this book, obviously, I write about this idea, which isn't popular in Chile. Chile, they're very sure that the friendship are Nazis, or are not Nazis, excuse me, are aliens. <laughs> but obviously, the tall, blonde, you know, scientific inclinations, naturally, there's this escaped SS officer, group of officer theory. Um, but, um, you know, obviously one theory is that it's a hidden, forgotten submarine base that they're operating out of in Patagonia. But of course, the more fun theory is that they uh, did discover this, um, you know, 
bell-shaped anti-gravity kind of propulsion system and we're able to build craft and use those to fuck off and that's why this dude. friendship cruise has this association with um ufo dude there's always tells in movies so you have what's his name arnold schwarzenegger and twins mm -hmm. what do they show him in? he's oh, like he's yeah yeah <laughs> He, but he's the he's the German superhuman that's on some island. Let's just say in Patagonia somewhere, mm -hmm. raised right as like this perfect being. That that is reminiscent of what your book describes, right? These yeah. huge, super Actually, beautiful. Yeah, it is. I never thought about the twins' connection. <laughs> and then, like, so you have that, and then in the movie Contact with Jodie mm -hmm. Foster. What do you see? What they did was they took the Nazi bell and they put it on three axes. Mm -hmm. It's exactly that machine that's spinning and it's spinning on three axes yeah. and moving. And then all she does is drop through it. And in our time, it appears that nothing happened. Right. But yet she's traveling, you know, through infinity for at least seven and a half hours. I right. think I think that's closer to reality because there's all these little drops that art the artist will pick up on. Mm -hmm. That was the brilliance because even though I think Carl Sagan was like totally out of his fucking mind, and who even knows who the producer was of Contact that decided to make whatever that portal device was. Mm -hmm. But that portal device, when you look at it before they deconstructed it in Poland, I mean, it's the Nazi bell. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's much bigger, you know, in the movie, but that's what Hollywood does. I just logically, once you get into frequency technology, once you get into resonant technology, you start to understand frequency is location. Hmm. That is a tenant in um, both sympathetic vibratory physics and in Grebevnikov's work. And that's what I think happens like with some of these paranormal, like these sites where you have people, you'll have like some crazy event occur in a home and then people think that they're experiencing ghosts. It's that, that, that super fluid, as you say, gets shocked yeah. in that, in that specific some area. Kind of tremor or current or like wave. an echo, mm -hmm. like an echo, because People don't even understand the majority of our electronic technology right now works because of the shock that occurs to metals. Mm -hmm. Most people don't know how a magnet works. Like I have super powerful magnets. ICP magnets. How do they work? <laughs> <laughs> so like magnets, right? You'll have like for this magnet to have a polarity for these to stick together. These magnets have something like 40,000 watts. Mm -hmm. I forget what it is that sent through them like a lightning bolt or something in one direction. And now that metal, the neodymium, is scarred for life. And the entire lifetime of that metal, well, not the entire lifetime. They say it, it about, it'll wear off in about 40 years. But you have the shock of that super powerful event now is always visible yet there's no electricity doing this work like i can hardly even get these magnets apart right but there was a one-time event hit it and now it's it it's doing work at a distance right mm -hmm. distance 
from a chronological perspective. That has to happen on Earth. Like these battlefields where like, you know, tens of thousands of people die, that amount of like just emotional trauma and terror, you can't tell me that doesn't leave an imprint on any yeah. area. Well, and again, if you get into to near death research and that kind of stuff, there's the famous uh, 22 grams, 22 point something. Yes. Um, again, hotly debated as all of these subjects are, goes without saying, um, but pretty well, decently understood that there is, it's not always 22 grams, but there is a, a seeming weight loss that comes with the passing of the electrical energy that we understand to be our neural, you know, the basis of our neurological system. Um, and essentially, as the people who have that experience describe, the fucking blast off, you know, the tunnel, light, the whole thing. And so if there is, if this is occurring, you know, you know, obviously on a consciousness-based level, but if there is a particle-based reality to consciousness, which again is, is the basis of Eastern medicine, um, <laughs> there, this blast-off effect essentially would be creating some kind of event in that superfluid. Um, you know, it could be seen as like a, so in that case, a, um, a battlefield, a mass death scenario could send a very large rush upwards, causing a vacuum, a rip current, if you will, in the, the superfluid. You know, upwards, who knows where it goes, but wherever it's going, it's creating that, you know, that current, that leftover effect. Um, and again, this is kind of what Gurbinikov described as happening when he operates this craft, is that it would create bizarre psychedelic effects in its wake. Um, one of the more interesting details was when he flew the craft, people didn't look up and see a more squat Russian scientist flying, you know, a pallet machine. They saw these glowing, glowing. geometric uh, shapes. Yeah, discs and triangles. Your classic they, UFO. They saw food fighters, didn't they? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so the uh, this kind of light bending phenomenon that is, you know, essentially become the cornerstone of most UFO sightings today because, you know, we base our shit on cameras, um, even though it's probably less reliable than ever <laughs> to be doing that, you know, just saying. Um, still, though, the those shapes, and even in Gurbinikov's own writings, he talked about, well, clearly people are seeing this all over the world, so I'm not the only one flying one of these things around, so I'm going to shut the fuck up about it. That was his kind mm. of ending conclusion until his son kind of started championing the writings. He wrote the memoirs, published only in Russian, and then, you know, sent these scans um, to the guy on KeeleyNet. And that's where most of this information on Gurbinikov comes from. Um, and there's a lot of other information out there that I've discovered is intentional misinformation. Almost Anytime you'll see like a video or anything describing Gurbinikov, there's always a video of like a Russian soldier flying like a weird. I've seen shielded. that. Yeah. yeah. And that is like he's standing on what is essentially a big drone. Like it's a helicopter pad. It's not it's not based on we know exactly where it came from, the patent from it. But it's always inserted in these Gurbinikov 
um, videos. And I think that's really interesting because the other stuff is still kind of out there. We don't really know which parts there's segments of supposedly he recorded, mm-hmm. but again, shrug, who knows where those came from, but you know, we know that piece is fake. And so I always find that interesting, especially when I'm looking into these stories, because you'll very often, and this has been written about by intelligence people. I'm reading a book um, about the 1800s anarchist movements right now. And the one guy, Rachovsky, the Anhar Akana, the, the czar's secret police guy, talks about doing this all the time, where you just got to put like a little bit of misinformation in it and it'll help a whole, you can make a whole thing fall apart. And he specifically did it with the Jews a lot. That was his favorite play was to associate the anarchists with the Jews to cause discontent. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, again, it's interesting. Anytime you see Gerbinikov, this known fake video of a quote unquote UFO that looks kind of similar to the UFO he's describing is interjected in and being like oh there's that so anyone who looks into it seriously will see well oh that piece is faked so the whole story must be fucking shit and not bother to look further do the superfluids as you know it do do they have any connection to superconductors because i've been fascinated Um, with superconduction for a very long time not to my knowledge. Again, this is where I love I love this stuff. I love reading about it. I love dabbling in it. But I'm also very thoroughly aware that I'm not understanding it at a level where I can confidently come back and be like, this is what it means. And this is how ghosts happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it, it, it's something. Something's getting, we're getting close. Um, and that's, again, from anyone involved with any level of consciousness research, um, there's great, um, you know, academics out there who keep it really academic, but there's other really good ones. Um, Jeffrey Mishlove, being one of my favorites, does a great job of breaking down, you know, the evidence for ESP and the scientific realities of these kind of things and how it associates with, um, you know, quantum mechanics which has become kind of a buzzword these days i like to try to stay away from it um but you know quantum mechanics and potentially these other uh subjects and this superfluid hypothesis which um potentially could be a very crucial key into what science is currently calling quantum mechanics so let so so let's we can bridge a gap here because I know you're you're much more into the metaphysical realm. Like what we're not talking about, even though it's a very highbrow technology, it it, mm-hmm. it sounds like any sufficiently advanced technology is magic mm-hmm. to to the right. person that isn't exposed to it. So let's let's bridge the gap here because there is a bridge to be had and this is why i get so excited because i tell my clients and the people that i work for all the time this whole thing is spiritual Mm. it's just moving at different speeds so what we call matter is just at a much slower speed than the than the supernatural aspects of life the unseen realm right the subtle realm and it's a hermetic principle, getting back to Schauberger, right. is that the subtle controls the gross. The subtle does control the gross, mm-hmm. flat out. So 
have you being a Florida boy? Where where are you in Florida, by the way? You uh, don't have based on Gainesville these days. Oh, nice. <laughs> are you are you you're a Gator? Yeah, my parents. I didn't go there. I couldn't afford it. But my parents went there, and that's where they met. So I'm Gator seed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> uh, it's a very beautiful country up there. Um, yeah. So being in Florida, there's tons of water. And the area mm -hmm. of Florida that you're in, North Florida, has like a ton of like these the caverns, uh -huh. the caverns and the beautiful springs and stuff like that. Have you ever heard of deuterium depleted water? Um, it sounds very familiar. Um, I, yeah, I think I have come across that terminology before. Okay, so I'm just going to be very brief with this description. Deuterium is heavy hydrogen. When you find it in water or you find it in people, it's it's pretty much the death signal. <laughs> the more deuterium you have in any living organism, the quicker it dies. Mm -hmm. Conversely, there's something called protium, which is light hydrogen. Hmm. And so I think that's hydrogen without, without uh, I forget whether it's a proton or a neutron. Protium, when you find protium in water, when you drink the water, all your mitochondria turn on. Mm -hmm. It helps your mitochondria produce energy, whatever energy is. Let's just call it electricity. Um, when you find protium in areas, if you introduce protium in areas, you have a field effect that mm -hmm. essentially upregulates cellular metabolism, upregulates DNA. It does all these things without it technically even touching it, quote unquote. So my theory is, is that there is like when with the Joe cells or the Mojo cells or any of these things that are dealing with water, because we're talking about a super fluid, right? Mm -hmm. Our atmosphere, we, we're in a fluid right now. Gases are considered fluid. Right. A lot of people don't know that. And all of nature is is pressure mediation mm -hmm. between different, densi different densities of fluids. And vibration of molecules. <laughs> right. So protium, um, there's a few different people that I've studied, is, is the first thing. Like when light is condensing into matter, because light isn't seen as photons in this model. What light is, is it's an actual coaxial reaction to the superfluid. But that when it when it, <laughs> when it coalesces, the very first thing it makes is protium and yeah. then hydrogen. And pretty much there's many chemists and there's just many physicists that have made the argument that pretty much every elemental thing from hydrogen all the way to like uranium and all the rest of it there are just all derivations of of hydrogen mm. it's just more complex hydrogen that's all it is mm. so maybe this superfluid that we're talking about is just this precursor to the protium yeah maybe it's just that and and what's actually occurring like like that's like the transition from the metaphysical, like let's say the causal realm to the physical plane. 
because what I want to hear from you is what are the similarities between all these things? Because I love what you're talking about with some of your interviews where you're saying the Bigfoot guys are just cool because they can <laughs> they can entertain the notions of the of the ET guys and they can entertain the notions of the ghost guys. You know, they're, they're the bisexual supernatural people They you know, they'll fuck anybody. Uh, they're definitely, again, <laughs> that being said, they still have their camps. So there's still the DNA people on this. But here's the thing is that they do have the various camps. You know, when you go yeah. to the ghost hunting conventions, it's still a lot of it is, is it's got the taste of Jesus Christ to it. You know what I mean? Like, it's not overtly like Christian and religious. Yeah. But it kind of is. <laughs> You know, all the demons and yada, yada, whatever. There's a lot of crosses to be found. Uh, yeah. But the, the Bigfoot ones, absolutely. You've got people who think he's an alien. You've got people who think he is like a gorilla, which, again, at this point is pretty close to as insane as all the other ones. <laughs> mm -hmm. Especially if you're talking about, you know, uh, places like Florida, sir, and some of the more remote regions. And we still got some... You know, there might be maybe, maybe in the Everglades, but the fact that they see him everywhere, all up and down the state, again, leads to a more paranormal explanation. Um, so that's, if you, oops, sorry, go ahead. So that's what I'm getting to. Okay, mm -hmm. so I really think it's this subtle transition, and that's why I earlier asked you directly about, has anybody doused these areas where, like, say there's an area where there's tons of Bigfoot mm. sightings. I would love for a dowser to go out there and see a nodal point, because in my own life, with direct experience that nobody can take away from me, whenever I find an, a nexus point where you have a dragon path that crosses over a ley line, without a doubt, you get... Uh, you get plasma balls. You get these mm. like what oh, people yeah. what people would call like ball lightning and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. That always happens over those spots. Absolutely. And I went on a cross country actual road trip, um, and we stopped at uh, Brown Mountain um, in the Carolinas. We did Marfa, Texas, where nice you can the Marfa see lights. Them. Yeah. So can that that if you're like dead set on seeing one, that's the way to go. Mm -hmm. Um fucking Brown Mountain. We went out there two nights in a row. And you know, I'm like on the hunt. And my partner, she's awesome. She tolerates all this crazy shit. And <laughs> she's like, um, oh shit. <laughs> and she looks over and she's like, is that one? And I turn around and it's gone. And the other guy that was out there was like, Yeah, that was one. And she's like, huh. And I'm like, son of a bitch, because I missed it. I didn't see, we didn't see a single other one for the rest of the night. Um, but Marfa, Texas, there were a ton. Um, we went to a couple other locations. What was it? Silver, some, some, silver something in Colorado. Um, and we did, there was one more in um, the desert in just south of Vegas. Um, but yeah, these light spots the plasma balls oh no the one in east texas that was the saratoga lights mm -hmm. um, and that one's really interesting because uh it has again the variety of of um, paranormal phenomenon associated with it and whatever again ball lightning is the scientific explanation for a lot of it but that's just you know answering a mystery with a mystery uh, whatever that operation is i believe 
operates in this has the same side effect in the superfluid as operating one of these crafts as taking a big dose of mushrooms as kind of a variety of these other you know known methods potential mm -hmm. methods to affect the superfluid um and so the the spheres of light you even have a lot of reports of bigfoots turning into those or starting as spheres of lights then turning into them um the again the sphere of light is associated with almost all haunting sites the orb which not the camera orb florida if you're showing me an orb you saw on a camera but you didn't see with your eyeballs don't show it to me it's a bug we got bugs everywhere there's bugs a billion it's bugs okay it's bugs mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, which is interesting remind me to loop back to that in regards to b theory because th that is an interesting connection um the bug orb phenomenon uh, but uh <clears throat> the orb itself the visual orb seems to be a precursor or a close associate to a variety of paranormal phenomena there's even a bigfoot here in um game close to gainesville it's the um oh, what's the name of that guy he's uh, just to the the northeast a little bit um and it, the legend is anyways to make it brief is you'll see an orb of light first and as you get close you'll see it's a bigfoot holding a lantern um which is super bizarre very unique in bigfoot lore um but it's been kind of like recruited as the town mascot this bigfoot holding a lantern mm -hmm. uh, and so this association is very very tight with all paranormal phenomena obviously the ufo one goes without saying <laughs> they're most often seen as light orbs um and so whether this is a natural occurrence that's creating an effect in the the superfluid or a technology that's creating an effect in the superfluid is still kind of up for for interpretation but what's occurring there in that effect that messing with the fluid I think what distincts what what makes the distinction between Bigfoot ghosts and aliens is the person's predisposed um, belief system, and that is cultural. I think mainly, but also potentially genetic to a certain extent. Um, but certainly the main function is culture. I think the best example comes from this really little known case out of namibia in southern africa um again they have this um ghost of the kalahari it's this light orb that people see mm -hmm. nowadays people report that they'll see this light orb it'll start following their car and then they'll see that it's like a ufo and they'll have abduction like experiences um that or the light will come and steal water which is this really common thing ufos do it'll just suck up a source of um clean water obviously not salt water swimming pools um water tanks those kind of things um but uh in the early colonial era when the dutch and uh, german and english settlers were you know kind of competing over the area they would report seeing this light and they report seeing the ghost woman who would float amongst the dunes that was kind of their explanation it was a mm -hmm. woman in white and they'd see her floating amongst these sand dunes and, you know, it was like a bad omen. Um, 
but in this one specific region close to the border in South Africa, kind of around this riverbed, the local people report the same glowing light, but when it gets close, it's a flying snake. It's got a giant glowing light on its head. It's got flaps like a cobra, but those flaps are so long that it uses it as wings. Uh, it has this heat associated with it, smoke coming out of its nostrils, kind of like an Asian dragon. Um, and it'll leave scorch marks. But its most noted behavior and why it's such a pest to the locals is that it'll latch on to sheep, suck the blood entirely out of those sheep, and then fly off, leaving these two perfectly burned vampire sucking wounds, which again, mm. lines up with the chupacabra present throughout right. all of Latin America, lines up with cattle mutilations, the cauterized wounds. Um, and what's interesting is this local region is pretty much only good for sheep herding. So one, that's why there's so many reports of this thing being such a pain in the ass. And two, why this local region had not experienced really as much colonization as the rest of Namibia. It's still pretty much the same nomadic sheep herding peoples. Mm -hmm. And so there again, kind of leads to the cultural element. That being said, some of the best reports do come from a few of the colonial people who moved to that region to become sheep, her sheep barons of themselves also reported seeing the snake. So it's obviously not entirely cultural because once those guys moved to that region, they had been exposed to the stories and their sheep started dying. They started seeing it too. Um, and it's interesting. There was a very recent study done by some anthropologists. Uh, it's a, in a different region of the Kalahari. I believe it's in Botswana. Or it might be, no, it's still in Namibia, but close to the border of Botswana. Um, Kalahari region still. And they did this really interesting study with these um, uh, Kalahari Bushmen. And simple, simple enough study. Two screens on a, a computer. One of them, all eight squares of green, one square of turquoise. The next one, eight squares of, or nine squares of green, except one of them is one shade different. And I'm talking like you have Photoshop Plus, you got all the colors and you hit up arrow once on the green shade. It's so <laughs> slight a difference to you and I, they're all green. You know, mm -hmm. you might, if you're staring really hard, maybe you're a trained artist, you might be able to pick it out. They showed that panel to these Kalahari Bush people, and every single one of them saw the green shaded one as that one. That one's the different shade. Mm -hmm. But when they showed them the one with the turquoise, only like 30% to 40% got it right. It was like 36% of them, something like that. So they, it didn't even register. Well, they were kind of like, um, maybe that one, maybe that one. Like, it, it was kind of like us trying to figure out the other one. And they have no, what was interesting is they have no word for um, blue in their language. And so, again, there's this linguistic aspect to it. And there is a really interesting thing from, um, God, I can't remember the historian's name. I'm missing all my names today. Um, this is why I write though, because when I do that, I get all I can just boom, it's there. <laughs> um, but there's the these historians who wrote this really interesting paper about the how the color blue didn't exist at all until the popularization. It wasn't of indigo, but it was of a different colored dye that they used for blue. 
That's why all royalty in ancient histories um, described as purple, um, purple being the color of royalty. Uh, even in the Iliad and the Odyssey, um, the word blue is never used. The ocean's described as wine colored. Um, the skies are only various grays and things like that. Um, and this is this really weird trend throughout history where the word blue, the concept of blue doesn't seem to appear until like after they pinpointed at a certain year, like 1200, 1100 or something like that. And it's very, very bizarre. And as, again, it goes into these, these notions uh. of, you know, particles not existing, um, unless they're observed. And then I take it to the next extent of even beyond that, I think of the alchemists creating fake names for weird jellies. And then today, you know, that's an element. <laughs> it's this weird process of perception, um, which creates reality. Um, I'm a big fan of this theory of biocentrism. That one's Dr. Robert Lanza. Uh, he, he, uh, he did this theory and there's many contributions to it but he does a really good pretty well um, written not too dense um, concise version of this biocentrism theory which is kind of an evolution on you know this idea of simulation theory that our reality operates in a similar manner to a simulation except from his perspective is close he comes from it from a medical scientific perspective but it's kind of the medical metaphysical perspective that us humans create our own reality and mm -hmm. so we are the generators of reality that consciousness and for his opinion biological observance so even down to the insects and the birds and the plants that without that stimulation none of this quote-unquote reality exists um bro i tell i totally agree with that like there's oh, so yeah. many things like so you're bringing up blue didn't exist why in every fucking commercial on tv now is magenta there mm -hmm. do you notice that like the t-mobile commercials like everything has this crazy whatever like hot pink magenta like they're really that's like that's all for the Super Bowl it's for the San Francisco Ravens Super Bowl that's they, all I've been doing <laughs> yeah yeah I know that part of it but what I'm saying is that there's a there's a conditioning in consciousness and also when it comes to like the whole there's no blue in Spanish the sky blue is known as celeste right. and that's like the the sky blue Mm -hmm. That that makes me wonder if uh, Jason Brashear's theory about the vapor canopy is real. I'm not familiar with that one. Uh, there's a lot of evidence that there was like something called a vapor canopy, especially when we had uh, megafauna and mega uh, flora, because there was a higher pressure with this, mm -hmm. what he calls a vapor canopy, but we wouldn't have had a blue sky. Right. The sky would have been a different color. Well, I again, I think that it, it also goes into this. Um, there's some really interesting information and studies about. Um, it's not astigmatism. That's the other thing. But it's the opposite of colorblind people. So colorblind people are missing a, one of the, these three cones that most people have in their eyes. 
there is an opposite mutation though where people have a um fourth cone and essentially when they like do like paintings of what they see normally it's like a super psychedelic painting like it's like that, that's me on... I, that you okay. i i think you just explained you're the first person to scientifically explain it i see billions of kaleidoscopes like right oh, now dude, there's a word for that <laughs> oh find out for me i will i've got a, i've got it bookmarked i'll send it to you um, yeah, my first my first time with ayahuasca, I was like so sick of hearing people with their bullshit explanations of what I was experiencing. So I said, mm -hmm. "I'll listen to you if you can explain what I'm seeing." And it was it was it right? Well, she showed me that close. she showed me what each pixel was. She showed mm -hmm. me like each pixel was like a strand. It's mm -hmm. almost like super string theory. Yeah, yeah. where it was like the end of a fiber optic and then as i followed it my consciousness turned from being like if i was looking at the kaleidoscopes like i'm always looking at like where the pinwheels are doing like right now mm -hmm. i can if i concentrate and focus i can create i can make you know the black of the skype thing work and i can put the blue mm -hmm. of your sweater there but when I relax my eyes, it's like turning up the brightness on a mm -hmm. on a screen. And then that brightness, all the little pixels, if you notice, they're all kaleidoscopes. Yeah. Yeah. As yeah. So there there is a, a scientific terminology for that. And what's very interesting about that one, and I think about it very often when it comes to um spiritual healings and psychics and stuff and Again, love-hate relationship with the psychics in particular over here uh, because sometimes it can be an issue. But the, um, the very interesting scientific kind of note to that was that color blindness occurs in men um, way more often than it does in women. And then the opposite is true for this additional cone where it's um, way more often in women. I think it's like... Um, Four times out of five, it's women will have this um, extra cone. And that is pretty close to your typical ratio you get with like psychics and spiritual healers and stuff. It's very often a lot more women and stuff who report having seeing auras and those kinds of things as well. Yeah. Um, which is really an interesting kind of note. Again, the graphs kind of line up correlation, not causation, but interesting. <laughs> Well, it's that my mother could see auras. She was an RN and she turned it off because it freaked her out. Oh, yeah. I'm like, sure that would be an like additional she, emotional stress you don't even need. Yeah. So she turned it off. So I must have gotten it from her because I can always at any point. I can turn up the gain and like actually see all the kaleidoscopes. My My wife thinks I'm constantly tripping on DMT. That's pretty much what it sounds like from the reports of what people see with this this eye mutation. That's pretty much, yeah, <laughs> the experience sounds pretty close to it. So very interesting. Again, um, and can, so can we go back just one second? Because mm -hmm. we you were you were following this thread where we can only see what we're conditioned to see. It kind of reminds me of this whole thing that we're told. I don't know if it's true, mm -hmm. but we're told 
that the indigenous peoples of the Americas, when they saw these massive Spanish galleons, it didn't even mm -hmm. register for them because they had right. no they had no frame of reference. Is that sort of what you're talking about with these people, the Kalahari only seeing these shades of green, but couldn't describe the other color because it was so far out of their wheelhouse? Well, again, this it's kind of just this novel study because it's it's the same issue. It's the same issue with quantum uh, mechanics with the slit experiments with the particles. It's the same issue with ESP um, experiments is that you can get these hints and the ESP experiment thing is I always like to call it the 11% because I like to simplify for narrative purposes. Uh, the 11%, which was essentially, and this is based off of um, Jeffrey Mishlove's writings. And if you want all the real numbers, go check out his Encyclopedia of Consciousness. Um, but uh, the ESP experiments they were doing like in the 80s and 90s with random number generators showed that on a good day, there was roughly 11% higher of chance that a person could influence the outcome of the number. And what that was, was essentially they'd sit there and they'd think, even number, even number, even number, even number. And if they were really thinking even number hard, they could get 11% higher than chance. Well, what ended up happening was they published the study and um, obviously people came in to recreate it and skeptical scientists recreated it. And they started getting, they did the same thing, even number, even, you know, even number, but they started getting odd numbers to about 11% higher than chance. And so they created all these other variations of the experiment. There would the researchers would set it up on the East Coast, have the participants doing it on the West Coast, but they still found that if the researchers believed in ESP even a little bit, it would create a more positive outcome on the experiments. If the yes researchers didn't believe in it, it would still come out a negative consequence. And the conclusion was kind of like, well, what do you do from here? We can't, if observation affects the experiments. There's no control, you know, and there's the, nowhere to go from here. Dude, there's so many ways we could go with this, but this leads me to one of the observations that drew me to you. you you're telling in some of your stories that, and I want to, I want you to give me the full Monty on your theory of this. You're saying when people try to electronically surveil these supernatural experiences, it invariably messes it up. Like it doesn't, uh, it doesn't yeah, come through. Sure, it fucks it up. <laughs> so, so go into that, and then like, because we can tie that into this whole ESP thing. Mm -hmm. All right, give me two seconds. I gotta grab a drink. Blow my no, whistle. I'll be right back. No problem. The the. There is something to uh, electrical fields that we are unaware of. If we're to tie this into like the whole Victor Schauberger way of looking at it, the hermetic principles of that, the subtle controls the gross, then there would be some sort of distortion that we're just unaware of that would affect the, the I guess you'd say, the subtle energy coming into the physical plane. Right. And so, again, from this perspective of, let's call it biocentrism. Um, so when I say yes, of course, personally, I agree. <laughs> I don't know, of course, but I do think that these principles 
are absolutely in play when discussing paranormal phenomena. It kind of, it ticks off the most boxes, even more so than, you know, secret superfluid technology influencing consciousness, uh, which is super fun, but this, this explains a lot more. And I think it even explains um, how we see legends become real in real time. Um, you know, I grew up in the Slender Man era, and so I was, when those girls stabbed that other girl, I honestly wasn't that surprised because Slender Man paranoia was rampant amongst kids that age. Um, and I had some of that too, man. I was, you know, waking up super early to catch the, the buses for middle school and shit, and I was super tired and didn't quite uh, know where, what I was seeing, what was going on. And sometimes you would see a shadow behind a tree and your mind starts to create these stories. Um, I think the same effect is probably most currently on display in North America when it comes to the skinwalker phenomenon. Um, and that is in particular, um, you know, not the traditional Native American lore of, you know, a shape-shifting shaman, which is clearly not what people are reporting. They're more reporting, you know, weird, bovine, bizarre-looking creatures, you know, that kind of look like deer or bears, but they're all mutilated and they're way too large and often, again, seen in these places where these spheres of light are seen and reported. Um, and so I think these phenomenon are direct representation of this phenomenon in action because the first time if that had happened at any other time in history they look at that boom that's a demon i mean jersey devil in new jersey that was the 17 1800s saw a weird horse flying wing thing oh, obviously a demon it's a devil it's the jersey devil boom um for almost any period you see something like that demon in the 40s and the 50s, you start getting aliens. You start getting, you know, your, um, uh, what's the Flatwoods monster? You start getting, you know, closer to your Mothmans in the, in the 60s and stuff. Um, as sci-fi starts to kind of, and secularism kind of takes over this narrative. But as more and more of the space stuff gets more debunked, and we see that these planets are dead um, next to us, supposedly, if you believe that, whatever. Um, <laughs> I, I tend to most days I tend to believe it some days I wake up crazier than others um, but um, that kind of started to die off and so for the very first time you have a group of people who are going out to these locations unbeknowingly uh, unbeknownst whatever uh, <laughs> unknowingly to these locations of, of potential superfluid anomaly, let's call it. And, and they have an experience and they see something that their mind can't comprehend where again, a peasant would have saw a demon, a kid from the fifties would have saw an alien. Um, if you were really into Bigfoot, you'd probably see a Bigfoot. But if you don't believe in any of those things and you're not really sold on religion or UFOs or things, your mind just does the best it can. Okay, you're in the woods, so it must be like a deer or a bear, but it's not that because it's something different. So we got to make it look different. And, you know, if it's unknown to us, it's probably dangerous. So let's perceive it as super fucking scary. <laughs> and so that'll get our conscious body to run the fuck away because that's what we should be doing right now. 
And so this is your perception, these weird, quote unquote, skinwalker creatures, these half abomination, you know, half rendered consciousness anomalies, we could call them. Um, just my personal pet theory. But it, again, it does explain why, you know, people, if you go out and you really are looking for Bigfoot and you were believing in Bigfoot, you are probably the most likely to experience some Bigfoot shit. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, other people will experience just plain strangeness. So going back to Raja Yoga, like your spine is the axis mundi. Could there be anything more, you know, biocentric than that? Right. Well, In fact, yeah, crown chakra, all of that. Again, these systems are, they've been around. It's not new technology, which I think is important. To yeah. Back on. And there's a very fun, there's a very crazy phenomenon that happens with the sun and the moon. No matter where you are in the world, the arc length of the sun and the moon relative to your position is always the same, which should be impossible. Like that, that should not be able to happen. They've had the, the, uh, I forget what they call people who study the sun only throw this data into supercomputers and then like completely lose their mind because no matter what model of this you know realm you believe in whether it's geocentric whether you think it's you know a solar system of billiard balls in space no matter what obviously flat being pushed up come on <laughs> or or accelerating downward because gases right. when you drop them you know all all the things i'm a fan of hollow personally <laughs> I think it's, it's all and filled with monsters thank you very much <laughs> I'm, I, I'm a fan of the swiss cheese model of of the uh of that's of, closer it's still hollow i'll take uh, it of arctos fame but the <laughs> the whole thing with it is is you, know, you we should be able to observe a greater distance of the sun or moon it, it should be further away from us than it actually yeah. appears to be so then the first time i saw that and i saw it modeled and then i saw the solar scientists actually lose their shit because of that that brought me back to the raja yogis and the raja yogis mm -hmm. are like hey we all think we're having the same experience but it's just a thought which then gets you back to Schauberger because the first law in Hermeticism is all is mine. Yeah. Yeah. Again, these principles, it, it gets, I, I don't know. I think the, the biocentrism aspect um, and the superfluid aspect, the more and more I'm into it, the more I see connections, which probably not good you should probably recognize <laughs> there you know what i mean it's, again tinfoil hat kind of stuff um you know fight back the paranoia uh but i'm still waiting to get man in black that's how i know i'll i've actually i've done something here that's the thing is you've been men <laughs> oh, in black and you don't know that's true oh i actually did <laughs> i did have a weird experience the other day that was woman in white Esque. it was very bizarre um awesome this, do tell it was it was at a i was at a bus stop on my way to work um 
And it was usually a pretty popular bus stop. No one was there today. Um, I was sitting there waiting for the bus. And this woman walks around the corner, comes up to the bus stop. She's in like, she's got a, one of those like basket grocery shop basket walker thingies. Mm-hmm. Um, and she's wearing this like glaringly white, like outfit, this church lady kind of outfit, super white, no spots. She's got the whitest hair I've ever seen. And she's a tiny old little black lady. And she comes up crazy hair, crazy white outfit. She sits there. I'm like, Oh, you know, good afternoon, whatever. And I go back to looking at my phone. She doesn't acknowledge me, but when she gets there, I see that she's kind of got like, um, she's kind of got like Eric Stoltz mask face. She doesn't look that bad. It's not like terrible, but she kind of looks like um, uh, the cat in the hat movie where it's the mm-hmm. cat in the hat's weird cheeks. She's got a weird looking face. It, it's bizarre. And again, I don't mean to malign this poor lady. I don't think it had, it wasn't like a growth or anything, <laughs> but she looks strange. And she just sits there staring forward, doesn't say anything to me. And then without any prompting, looks at me and asks if the 15, she says, does the 15 bus pick up here? And she says it in this really high robotic voice, like it was played off of a recorder. And I was like, uh, no, this is just the 11 bus. The 15 picks up down the road. And she's like, I was sure the 15 picked up here. And I was like, no, the, the sign says 11. I'm, I'm pretty sure it doesn't. I think it's that one. And she looks at the sign, looks back at me and says, thanks for the observatory. And then just keeps walking. And it was the most bizarre. I always took a picture of her because it was so strange. But it was it was one of those moments where I was like, I don't want to be weird. It was just hyper dude, bizarre. Dude, you were, um, in, you were in Who Cloned Tyrone Part 2, man. I guess so, man. <laughs> I just watched, it's weird you said that. I just watched that movie last night. <laughs> Freaky, you said that, but it was just like that, actually. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, yeah. She just walked off. It was very strange. the The voice was the weirdest part. The high pitched, very robotic, and the thanks for the observatory. The weird use of the word observatory. Yeah, Ugh, it was bizarre. <laughs> that is bizarre. Um, oh. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So I'm I'm just like really into because i do a lot of astrology for people and Mm -hmm. over the years i'm a massage therapist i also do professional astrology and i build dome homes Mm -hmm. so i do very weird things but the one thing i've noticed in all those venues is people perceive things extremely differently Mm -hmm. like everybody could have the same signal from their environment but it's being interpreted in a completely different way absolutely even men and women, like the way men pick up signals relative to the way women pick up signals. And also I've noticed in my own biology, depending on where I am and when I am, my own biology picks up the signals differently. Like the the same input, like you can never, like what's the old uh, saying? I think it was like a Taoist saying, you can never step in the same river twice. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, if we're at a super fluid, if we're in that living river, like you're never going to have the same experience twice, right? Right. And that would actually lend itself to biocentrism. That would lend itself to this, like, I just know we're, we're all having a very unique experience. 
we like yeah. to believe in the collective thing and there is obviously a collective mm -hmm. thing that goes on but like we all kind of do live in our own little universe yeah oh yeah certainly we have our our uh, robert anton wilson called it the reality tunnels yes um and i'm certainly a subscriber to that idea that there there is the reality tunnel but of course we do have to share our reality tunnels with everyone else's there has to be some kind of cohesion just for species survival well i now, think that's i think that's why they're getting rid of language like you brought this up earlier is like like one thing i appreciate about you is you're eloquent uh, there's like i saw back in like it was like 2001 i was working uh, one of my clients was this librarian for broward county and i was i was doing thai massage so i was like rotating her i looked under her her she had like this beautiful leather you know bound chair and under it was like this book that was like this thick and i'm like what is that and she's like oh that's an 1857 dictionary yeah. And I'm like, it's huge. And she's like, there used to be a lot more words. Uh huh. And so the thing I, the reality tunnel thing that you bring up is what actually, I think the storyteller or the person that can actually eloquently, because eloquence means you can describe a situation with a nuance mm -hmm. that that other people with a limited vocabulary can't. Right. And that's why I'm like, I, I grotesquely hate when people are trying to use emojis. Like if I ask something <laughs> very specific to somebody and I get a response with an emoji, I want to beat them to death because I'm like, you're not <laughs> being specific. You're like being lazy. Uh, see, I intentionally use random emojis just to add a little confusion to the day. <laughs> well, that's <laughs> funny. I do that. Plants, faces, boom. No, I do that too. That's funny. <laughs> that's different. I'm talking about like there's like stuff that needs to get done, and it's like okay, this, yeah. this, 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 and then you're you get like two emoji responses. I'm like, mm. you're fucking retarded. Like. <laughs> uh it is frustrating, but it is, I, I suggest going at it with an open mind because it is inevitable. I think the, um, you know, one of the silliest things we do in the modern era that I don't think anyone ever did. The reason those dictionaries were so big back then, no one ever really gave a shit about like people saying certain words and stuff. <laughs> you know what I mean? They're like, oh, that's a funny one. Let's write that down. <laughs> like the, the urban dictionary was the dictionary. And mm -hmm. so I think that, you know, this, you know, intentional policing of language, it always backfires. You know what I mean? Again, like the retarded used to be the scientific word. And now you're not supposed to say that one. I say, I, mean? it, I say it all the time. And uh, so, again, simple, though, simple, slightly different meanings. But again, it's already becoming a derogatory. Like that mm -hmm. one's already going bad. They're gonna, anytime you come up with a word like that, they're going to repurpose it. And so well, there's any idea, that's why I'm an English teacher, Canadian-based education, though. So blame the Canadians if you disagree with anything I'm saying oh, <laughs> when it no. comes to linguistics. Um, but uh, <laughs> um, if, uh, you know, like this idea to like, this is how you should speak proper and things like that. Again, I like what you were saying. Eloquence 
is beyond that because you have to be able to be understood. And um, that's, I really love nonfiction books, but there's nothing worse than a nonfiction book written by a guy who's only written academic papers. Oh, you're right. You're (laughs) so right. You're like, oh my God, it's it's rough. Uh, Even Gurbinikov's memoirs (laughs) translated, they're, they're not, they're like, most exciting read he talks a lot about bugs if you yes, like bugs you'll be into it uh, very little about the ufo re- relative to the bugs there's something uh, though about pre because this this is what i think we should wrap up on because mm-hmm. eloquence is prefrontal cortex mm. it's a choice and what right. is occurring when somebody is being eloquent is that they're really wanting you to connect to their reality tunnel. Yeah. Or they're really wanting you to believe their propaganda, like however you want right. to say it. There is an intention to describe something in such a way in which you will become resonant with it. Oh, yeah. And that's like the people that we love and the people we quote unquote vibe with that's like it's a resonant pattern absolutely and in that resonance man it's like oh there's extra energy here woohoo let's go mm-hmm. and so um there's something to this whole thing with the biocentrism the use of the prefrontal cortex and like actually what it is when we're when we're seeing these things that our mind, our quote unquote mind, our brain can't decipher. Right. right? It it's yeah. trying to decipher, but it could it, it only has so much, you know, energy or wherewithal. You right. Know? And it's from what blue. <laughs> we can't see it yet because it's blue. <laughs> so there there is this mind component that I think we should just like you know, in the, in the podcast with, because it's very obvious that the, the mind, the, the continuity that gives observation, it's, it's, you know, resting place. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's the key to all of these things that we're talking about. Oh yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of those, it's one of those things where, you know, um like simulation theory is pretty corny these days because it's kind of been beaten to death you know rick and morty's and whatever (laughs) um but when i think about when i try to you know do some forward thinking and and think about what a thousand years they'll look back and when they think about philosophy in a thousand years they're not going to be like oh you know if we're still around that is they're not gonna be like oh you know the guy who memorized all the earlier philosophies who taught at Harvard. That was the greatest philosopher. No, they're going to be like those two weirdos who made the matrix because they were able to get an entire globe to understand what essentially is a really complex Mm -hmm. (laughs) philosophical idea. The fact that I can say like the matrix and people are like, Oh yeah, simulation theory. I get it. Mm -hmm. Is really a, a huge step forward. And I think that's, an important even though that's not even the greatest movie it's you know love it or hate it whatever that's a huge step forward in philosophy and storytelling and and eloquence in a way and so um 
I guess that's what I try to bring through to these subjects through my work. Because a lot of the paranormal, there, you know, is this effort to make it academic and try to to understand it through that lens. And one, people have been trying for hundreds of years. It's not going to work. And two, they don't want it. They, like, academics don't want it. And so forget it. Let's instead bring it to the people and through consensus research and through us adjusting our reality tunnels together to accept new information um, and new concepts. I think that's how um, we take the steps forward to actually understanding some of these, these grander mysteries. Chaz, man, I love your mind. I thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Where, where can people find your work? Awesome. You guys can find me um, at Chaz of the Dead on all the social medias chazofthedead.com to find articles, podcast appearances, links to my books. Um, and then check out paranormalitymag.com. That's the magazine I write for most of these days. All kinds of weird, spooky stories from people all over the world telling uh, high strangeness, ghosts, Bigfoots, UFOs, all the kind of stuff uh, we've been talking about today from a variety of perspectives, different reality tunnel sampling. Mm -hmm. um, so if you like any of that kind of stuff, check that out and you can use discount code Chaz at checkout. Awesome. Um, I so will. Yeah. Thanks again for having me on, dude. This was a, a great and, chat and uh, I'd love and to be back on anytime. Do, do not forget to send me that information about the fourth cone. I, I want to learn. I got gotcha. you. I, I need to know about my eyesight. <laughs> Hell yeah. I'll send that along. We're going to post this uh, just to give you an idea. Today is the fourth. This will come out on Monday the eighth. I'll send it to you when it comes cool. out. Sounds good. All right, Senor. It was it was great to hang, and we will chat soon. Sounds good. Awesome. Thanks again. Alrighty, my man. Bye bye. Peace. You ought to know. Well, now you. You ought to know by now. Reality tunnels. Biocentrism. I think I've heard that term one time before, but it was never explained to me like Chaz explained it. And <laughs> if we are living in the hermetic principles. The first hermetic principle is all is mind. And mind isn't the brain. Mind is the field that we actually attune to for information. Our body is an antenna. When we exercise, when what we eat, who we're around, who we make love to, what materials touch our hands, all these things attune our antenna, antenna. And that antenna then allows information to be transduced into something that our brain can interpret. <laughs> if you haven't heard of this before, they've found people that have had water on the brain, they, which means they're born essentially with like, you know, 60 to 70% of their gray matter not there. 
but yet they still have all the cognitive capacity of somebody that has a full brain. People that have been shot in the head, you know, lose part of their brain, still have whatever. And it's because the antenna of the whole body did not lose its capacity to transduce information. We now know that the fascia of our skin, or I should say the fascia of our musculature, which is below the epidermis, it is a superconductor. So what we were once calling nerves that were, you know, essentially transporting information, that model is way too slow. The better way of saying it is like the whole body is one thing. And so when there's one action that occurs on one part of the body, that action or impulse is moved throughout the body instantaneously. This is getting back to the superfluid thing. This is getting back to the ether dynamics. This is getting back to all these different spirituality modalities that described, for lack of a better term, oneness, <laughs> even though it's not one, like it, it, on one level, it's one, but it, what it's doing is it's describing a field in which there's instantaneous movement or instantaneous, like some people call it in the scalar domain, like a transverse wave. The way you could think of it is if you have a broomstick and you're holding it in your hand and you just move your hand, then the broomstick on the other end is moving instantaneously. That's like, that's a description of a transverse wave. This scalar domain, the radionics domain, it is what we live in. So Chaz talking about like our minds transducing different inputs from the environment through whatever filter is available to that individual, that is like something that should really breed compassion in people. I see this all the time with astrology. People are just different. Our antennas are different. Like, look at our shapes. For like, I know people are like, oh, we're, you know, we all, all of our blood is the same. Like, I get it, but I'm into diversity. I'm into the uniqueness of beings. And we are very, very different. We experience things differently. And I, I know I vibe with people that are eloquent, that can get me to fall into their reality tunnel. <laughs> so hopefully you guys find me eloquent <laughs> enough to fall into this reality tunnel because this was a lot of fun. Please check out Chaz. The dude is uh, just so much fun to listen to. I haven't read any of his work, but by telling with how well he speaks and knowing that he's an English teacher, um, I'll, I'll really enjoy reading his work. So I appreciate you guys kicking it with us. Um, we have some really mind-bending things on tap. I think you can see it behind me. This is a model. No, that isn't two sand dollars that are 30 degrees from each other. That is a model of the new calendar. And um, I'm going to have the inventor of the new calendar on the pod. I think next, I think I'm interviewing him this weekend, which 
there are some like really crazy synchronicities. I'm somewhat of a synchromystic. I like to follow the ebb and flow of of my surroundings. It uh, really helps <laughs> when I can go with the flow of things. And uh, I think when we actually have a more accurate calendar and follow that, the the frequency, like Chaz and I were talking about, when your chronological frequency can get in tune with the frequency uh, of objective reality, there's probably a lot of more energy that will flow in your direction. So I'm looking forward to doing that interview um, and, and presenting that to you. And then we're going to get knee deep into the Enneagram because the Enneagram, as far as we can tell, um, I don't know all the ins and outs of the Enneagram. I'm not saying that it's the end all or be all. But there are some archetypes, the nine different archetypes of the Enneagram that uh, my main man, Slick Dissident, uh, Gabriel, he's been really chewing on for a few years. This will bode very well for the nine-day week of the new calendar. And I'm going to do an experiment. I'm going to go ahead and work six days. Oh, I'm going to, how should I say this? I'm going to adopt a nine-day week where I work six days and I'm off three days. And each one of those days will be linked to an archetype of the Enneagram. I shouldn't say of the Enneagram. There's nine main personality archetypes that the Enneagram reflects. <laughs> I don't think the Enneagram created it. I just think the Enneagram is a system to describe it. And I did this in my life in 2011 with, um, I went to a 13 moon system instead of a, so instead of a month being 12 months in the Gregorian way, I went to a 13 month calendar, which was a Mayan thing. And it was also a Hindu Ayurvedic practice of the old Ayurveda. Now that I can't find online anymore, the shrinking internet thing is really happening now. But this, because there were 13 moon divas and I was studying the divas. And so every month when I would sky watch, you know, I'd wake up at three o'clock in the morning and skywatch because that was part of my training in celestics. It was very good to to understand the ruling energy of that particular moon. You know, in the West, we'll call it like a wolf moon or a harvest moon or whatever. In the East, they just have different terminology and it has like a different nuance and do a different characteristic. And when I started to do that, nature became much more animistic. It became much more interactive with me. Uh, the stellar sphere became interactive with me. And I'm really looking forward to this experiment with the five season year with nine day weeks. And because there are some alignments like with the solstices and the equinoxes and uh, what is it? Uh, the What's that day during the summer? The, the midsummer that 
are just uncanny with this calendar that's based off of the the light of the hour of the day so good stuff i can't wait to bring this all to you guys uh we're gonna we're really going to be rounding out the cosmology because from day one, this podcast was a cosmology podcast. We talk about all things that kind of lead us to the culmination of what uh, what's going on here, <laughs> at least from a, a simple gardener in those arcs. So I hope you guys enjoyed the pod. Please support us if, and I say us now because my wife is my producer. Um, we are growing. I I don't know if you can see, but like I put down new flooring in my office. You can see me ripping up the other room. Um, total renovations to the office space. I've got new equipment to make the videos and everything sound better. And uh, yeah, we're moving full bore ahead with uh, doing some dome building in the Ozarks and uh, yeah, whatever you feel like supporting this year with the super chats. This last year was wonderful. There were some super generous supporters that um, didn't ask for any recognition. And we're going to start to live stream. Um, I don't know when exactly yet. <laughs> I know I've been promising that for a minute, but uh, I think I would have BB um, Owen Benjamin on for the first live stream. And um, we're just going to go for it. Uh, I think what I'm going to do with the live streams is I'm going to go through certain uh, axial people that I've studied and kind of go through their their teachings a little bit. Um, the first one I want to point out to people is David Lapointe of the Primer Fields. He is just like, like what he showed me with magnetics, it was on the level of Floyd's suite, like just the amazing amount of information. I hope you guys caught that, by the way, with this last interview with Chaz of the Dead with the whole thing with magnets. Um, yeah, I think with the live stream, I'm going to go through the, the different people and kind of weave it all together for you. And then you guys will be able to super chat You'll be able to interact with me. I will have a couple moderators. So more than likely when my moderators uh, tell me that they're available to moderate, then we'll do it that way. And uh, that way that will keep the riffraff down. Um, come come to our Telegram chat. It's uh, the BioCharisma podcast chat on Telegram. It's awesome. We have like 700 people on there that are constantly ribbing each other. Uh, we're all doing a turpentine uh, doubt. I shouldn't say we all. There's a bunch of us doing a turpentine cleanse. Um, I'm back on the turpentine. I have concocted a really cool uh, compound to help with that. Uh, my body is really responding to it extremely well. And uh, yeah, there's a bunch of real fun stuff that's going to be coming to market soon. So uh, hopefully you guys are enjoying the, the gravy sesh and I really appreciate you giving your attention in my direction and look forward to, uh, hearing from you in the near future.